This audio is brought to you by muslimcentral.com. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Alhamdulillah. Wa salatu wa salamu ala Rasulillah. Brothers and sisters in Islam, assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Today is part 19 of the seerah, which we have been journeying on for a few months now, alhamdulillah. And we have arrived at the point where the Prophet has left Mecca and he has now begun his first day in Medina. His first day in Medina. In the Hijri calendar, it's recorded to be the 12th of what you call Rabi' al-Awwal in the first year of the Islamic calendar. And that's equal to about 37 September, 622. You know, we're in now 2018. That was in 622. That's when the Prophet ﷺ is recorded to have been the first day in Medina. So today, inshallah, we're going to see that transition. The change from what happened in Mecca to what is now going to happen in Medina. This is it, guys. This is the change. This is where everything becomes serious. Let me recap. In Mecca, the types of verses that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala was revealing in the, from the, in the Quran were very different in the way that they were now going to be revealed in Medina, the verses of the Quran. Did you know that the Quran is divided into two, uh, two types of verses? Two types of verses in the Quran. And they're mixed in between in the surahs. Some surahs have more of these types of verses and less of the others. Some have more of the verses that were appearing in Medina. And other surahs, they have more of the verses that appear in Mecca. Some surahs were purely all Mecca. Some were purely all Medina. And they call them the Meccan verses and the Madani verses. The Makki verses, Madani verses. So Makki verses means... The verses that were revealed from Allah to the Prophet ﷺ while he was living in Mecca. And the verses that were revealed to the Prophet ﷺ in Medina are called the Madani verses. What is the main difference? The main difference is that the verses in Mecca were shorter, sharper. They had more of a ring to it. They're a bit more entertaining to read. When you read them, somehow your voice becomes nicer in it because they're set up for that. Why? Because the types of people that it was addressing were people who didn't really want to listen to the Qur'an, but they loved poetry. So they needed fast, sharp verses. It's like today, in our time, we have young people who, are, who, find, who get bored very quickly from listening for too long. Right? You want sharp, quick. They want quick learning. And you know what the result of that is? The technology that we have. The iPads and the different apps that they now, now use. I mean, we're almost wishing that they can go back to watching TV. That's, I mean, that's how bad it is. So the iPads, the iPhones, the technology, the 21st century generation, they want fast information. Language, we, don't, we can't speak that language that well. I mean, we make up our own words. All right? Like, that they cut their words. BRB means be right back. All right? Or um, SH, SMH. Shake my head. You can really, really trick me if you try to use these words, these letters on me. 
Anyway, I'm not going to go on explaining them because then I'll sound very cringy, which is another word, cringe. Anyway, all these words that they're using, fast, fast information. You want to watch a lecture on, on YouTube, something that you want to learn from. If it's longer than two minutes, people don't want to watch it. Five minutes, maybe. Seven to ten minutes, nobody wants to watch it, no matter how valuable it is. And so the ignorance has become more. And patience has become less. And manners and etiquettes and character has become less. Wisdom has become less. So my brothers and sisters in Islam, when you're talking to a people like that, you have to talk to them in a way that they're going to listen at first. And then slowly, gradually, you teach them. And it's a good idea in how to teach our children. You give it to them little bit by little bit, as much as they can understand. Now, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sent down these verses in Mecca, short, precise, entertaining, and they're not talking about difficult things. They're not talking about complex things. They're talking about Allah, God. They're talking about the idols. They're talking about Jannah. Talking about Jahannam. Talking about that there's a day of judgment. It's talking about you're going to die and be resurrected. It's talking about the value of this world. It talks about simple things. Pray, but you know, it doesn't talk about how to pray. Even the hijab, uh, the, the veil for the women, the prescribed hijab, the veil for the women, it was not yet ordered in the Quran or in the Sunnah, in the words of the Prophet ﷺ, in Mecca. That was later on in Medina. In Medina, however, the verses are longer. How can you tell the Meccan verses from the Madani verses? The verses of Medina, they're longer. They take more effort to read. They require longer breaths. For example, one, the longest verse in the Quran is in the second last page of Surah Al-Baqarah. It's one whole page, one ayah, one verse, one whole page. If you're praying behind an imam and he says, you know, brothers and sisters, don't worry, I'll only read one ayah. And he goes for that second last verse of the Quran, you're stuffed. You're going to have to be standing up for the next half an hour if he's reciting very well. But because we're so bored, we feel tired so quick. One ayah in the whole Quran, in the Quran is one whole page. And it talks about, you know what it talks about? Business dealings. How we should deal in business if we, if we loan or if we borrow and that we should write it and get two witnesses to it. Rights, money rights of people. A whole verse talking about business and trade and money rights. Just about that, subhanAllah. And that all came down where? In Medina. It talks about riba, usury. Today they call it interest. To sound nicer, but it's the same thing. And it came down in Medina. It's quite interesting because the Jews, remember we said last week that there were three tribes of Jews that lived around Medina, right? Who remembers their name? Banu Qurayza. Banu Qaynuqa and Banu Al-Nadir. That's their names, right? Now, even those names, Banu Qurayza, Qaynuqa and Nadir, are not Arabic names. Because the Jews aren't Arabs. But they happen to get there somehow. I don't know. We, we actually don't know. The historians are guessing. But they have, they learnt the Arabic and they become part of the sort of, around the Arabs. But anyway, they were dealing a lot with riba, usury. When I say riba or usury, what I'm saying is like the equivalent of today saying something like interest. Interest is one type of usury, riba. And the Jews over there, they used to really survive off riba and usury, interest. And it's quite perfect that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sent down those verses there. Because the Arabs didn't really trade like that. I mean, they did gambling. And the verses of gambling came down there. They loved alcohol. The verses of alcohol came down there. So stuff that they can understand, right? 
The verses of the Qur'an in Mecca were also about the Muslims practicing in private, private worship, you know, in improving yourself. You know the word jihad? It has two meanings. The first meaning is what we like using here in when we're living among Western people who, not just Western people, among in, in the non-Muslim lands, where they do not declare war against us, where you're allowed to live in safety and they're not at war with you. You're at peace and they allow you to practice your religion. We use the form of jihad which is to struggle and strive against your own whims and desires, the evil that's within us, right? You, jihad against that. To pray to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and wake up in the middle of the, of the night or to wake up for Fajr prayer, it's not easy, right, for some people. So your nafs tells you, sit down, you know, sleep in, who cares? And you get angry, you get upset, so you have to have a mujahada, you have to make jihad against yourself. You have to say to it, no, I will fight you and I won't let you win. So you become selfish and you fight it, you're not going to become selfish. You feel angry, you want to bash someone, you want to insult someone, you want to humiliate someone, you want to send some humiliating or insulting text messages to someone. And you fight yourself and say, oh, hold on to it. You can't forgive someone. You say to yourself, listen, man, you've got to try and forgive. I won't let you enough, so I won't let you make me a bad person. Okay, everybody wants to strive like that. So these verses about that type of jihad were in Mecca for the first 13 to four, almost 14 years. But there was no physical jihad, like as in to fight, to fight an enemy that fights you. All this time the Muslims were being fought, they were massive, they were being tortured, they were being killed, but no verse to defend yourself and fight back and take up arms was revealed yet. None of the Meccan verses. The Madani verses, now it was time. The different type of jihad was to be applied. And the type of jihad that, we, that is going to be now called upon in Medina was a jihad of defense. That the Muslims can now, were now allowed to take up arms to defend themselves physically, violently. The word violence sounds bad, but there's good violence and bad violence. You might be saying, what? There is no such thing as good violence. There is good violence. If you are defending yourself against an attacker and he's holding a weapon against you, you need to use violence. We have self-defense. Any type of self-defense that you use teaches you violence, a form of violence, but it teaches you to discipline yourself and use it in the right, not in the wrong. That's the only difference. Every country has a right to defend itself against the enemies and to defend its borders, especially if there's a threat of an open enemy. So it makes an army and it buys weaponry and it trains its soldiers to take up arms. That is in order to protect its country and its civilians. That sometimes they have to be violent. If they have to, then we call this good violence. In order to protect, to uphold and not destroy the country, right? So now the Muslims were in Medina and the Muslims now were able to establish their own land, their own government, their own nation. They were able now to build, to produce, to become a productive ummah, one that is now going to give, one that is now going to establish a civilization, one that is going to become a recognized civilization, country, uh, whatever you want to call it, a nation. And you cannot become a nation by just sitting aside 
in the corner without being involved, get ready for the word, in politics. This day and age, when we say politics, it means ugly. We say, don't mix politics with religion. I cannot disagree more. But it depends what you mean by politics. If you mean the political world, like the liars, the scammers, the cheaters, the hypocrites, they promise you one thing and do another, they cheat the system in order to get leadership and for their party to win under any circumstances, then that is not the politics I'm talking about. There is also, just like there is good violence and bad violence, there is also good politics and bad politics. Everybody needs politics, but there is good politics. When you talk to someone in order to defuse a conflict between you and them, a fight, you need to use what you call politics. You need to change your language. You need to probably sit down and encourage communication. You need to be able to listen to what their point of view is and they listen to your point of view. And you come to an agreement. Or you may sign a contract. Or you may put in some laws and boundaries in place. Sometimes you need to need politics with people. You need to, you know, change your wording around. In order to establish something that is in the benefit of everyone. So Islam now in Medina has to go into politics. They have to establish a government. They have to establish rules. They have to establish new laws. They have to be able to uh, create a civilization. They need to train themselves. They need to protect themselves. Because who is out there that is still wanting to destroy them? The Meccans. They're fugitives, man. They ran away from them for 14 years. They're not going to let them go. So it would be very stupid for a Muslim to think that they just sit down and let anyone attack them, let anyone beat them up, let anyone bully them. I mean, in school, as a teacher, we teach our kids, uh, the students, how to face a bully. If a bully in the classroom keeps bullying someone else in the classroom, then you can't be a bystander. A bystander is someone who is helping the bully. You have to help the, the victim. So when you stand up with the victim and you reply to the bully, if then, then you, are doing, you are doing good. You are protecting, you are taking up you know, strength. Is that correct? Isn't that correct? Okay. Uh, so my brothers and sisters, the Muslims have to now get up in a different way to what they were in Mecca. They now have to face and get some bravery and courage and train how to defend themselves and how to fight. And they have to establish a government with its laws and get themselves a proper identity. And now, the world is soon going to be forced to respect them. And truly, they deserve respect. I want to make a very important point before I go on now to what happens in Medina. Very important point. Brothers and sisters, a civilization, a country, a people, a government, whatever you want to call it, an empire, whatever you want to call it, it is not judged as a civilized nation by its technology and its money and the way it looks. A country is not a civilized country based on how many cars it produces, how many tall buildings it can make, what new technology it brings, 
what new computer systems and programs it adapts, how they can create hovering cars, how they can... This is not how a civilization really is uh, respected. A civilization is respected. Well, it can be respected with that because it's helping people. But there's one foundation that if it doesn't have it, it is not a good civilization. It is justice and fairness and upholding the rights of its citizens. Justice, fairness and the rights of its citizens. It is a fair government. It is a people who uphold justice, who are fair, who do not favor you know, people having laws different to others, applying uh, what we call a hierarchy, you know, like the pharaoh system. Ever heard of pharaoh system where they built the pyramids? Hierarchy. If you're on top, you belong to the king or the pharaoh, then you are, you know, you got special privileges. And if you're at the bottom, you're a peasant, you're a slave. You don't have the same rights. That is not a civilization. And pharaoh in Egypt, they built among the most technologically advanced buildings, the pyramids. Even till today, they can't work out how they built them. But was it a good civilization? No. It was a corrupt, oppressive, one of the worst that ever came about. Isn't that correct? So a government and a civilization is judged by its justice, fairness, and upholding the rights of its citizens. Not by its good looks. Okay, brothers and sisters? And that is what Medina is now going to be established as. Before the high buildings, before... And you're going to see, subhanAllah, it's so interesting. How the Prophet's mosque was built. The most important structure in the history of Islam after the Hijrah was the most important building in the history of Islam is the Masjid of the Prophet, which was the first thing he built in Medina. And you're going to see that it was so primitive, so simple, when they could have made it so beautiful, like so creative and and uh, architecturally amazing, but they didn't. Because there's something that is going to establish. And this, my brothers and sisters, now, I need your attention. This is what makes us or breaks us as a community. Right now, we're not a nation. We're not in Medina. We can't make a government. And we're not asked to do that. Nor are we commanded in the Quran or Sunnah to overthrow this government. They are giving you protection and asylum. Some of you have become refugees. We are not asked to overthrow the government. We are not asked nor commanded to establish Sharia here. This is not what we are asked to do right now here. Just like the people who went to uh, Ethiopia, Al Habasha. So long that the Prophet said he treats you well and has got justice and fairness over there. The Muslims didn't go to overthrow the government. Even after Medina, after the Prophet went to Medina, he did not command them to overthrow Al Najashi. Nor did they even invade Ethiopia or have, in fact, they established peace. And a, and a friendship with them while they were still Christian. So my brothers and sisters in Islam, you have to have the foundations. And what are these foundations? Number one is what the Prophet ﷺ did. You need to break. You need to break pride, pridefulness, nationalism, tribalism, Right? Genderism. You know that women are below the men, for example. Because that's what the Arabs were doing at that time. And not only the Arabs, sorry. The entire world put women as the lower class. 
So that's what Islam was coming to bring. And to bring justice and equality between the people and something else called equity. Equity means to put, give everybody what is suitable for them, what their rights are. Even the animals, to give the, the beasts and the insects and their own pets or their own livestock, their donkeys, their camels, their horses, their goats, their sheep, their rights. Everybody, even the animals, even the insects. The Prophet ﷺ, when he came into Medina, this is the story. He told them, let my camel decide, wherever it sits, there will be my house, there will be my house. So that people don't disagree, so that people don't fight over their hospitality for the Prophet ﷺ. How amazingly wise and intelligent and smart the Prophet ﷺ was. He knew that there are these two tribes and they've been fighting for hundreds of years. And now their love for hospitality, the Muslims, the, the, the Arabs loved hospitality, that if he were to allow them to sleep at someone's house or to let someone else be their host, it can cause a fight between them. They can turn it back into tribalism. So he goes, leave it to the animal. Let the camel decide. Nobody could get upset with a camel. Isn't that right? Everybody was happy. And he let the camel walk. And then everybody's watching an animal, a camel. When the camel sat down, they go, Subhanallah, this is where we're going to build the Prophet's house. In the meantime, there was a, a companion named Abu Ayyub al-Ansari. He happened to be right next to where the camel sat. And obviously the Prophet ﷺ needs a place to sleep in for a few nights. So who did everybody agree on? Abu Ayyub al-Ansari, because he happened to be right next. Because they consider, even the Arabs had this. Before Islam came in, the Arabs of Medina and Mecca, when you live next to a neighbor, the neighbor had enormous rights. They always had this. But Islam came in and kept this beautiful characteristic. See, what, what is Islam? Islam wasn't really all that new. Hijab wasn't new. Salat wasn't new. Fasting wasn't new. The rights of neighbors wasn't new. The Ten Commandments wasn't new. None of it was new. But people had forgotten and their desires came in and some of them made up some other rubbish. What Islam did was, whatever was still good, it kept it. it just, Allah just said, and your neighbors, give them their rights. There's a hadith from the Prophet ﷺ. He said, Sahih hadith in Bukhari and Muslim. He said, and you can see this in a book called Riyadh al-Salihin. He said, Jibreel alayhi salam kept on reminding me about the rights of my neighbor and that I must treat them well, even if they're not Muslim, even if they're not Muslim, your neighbor's not Muslim, they still have enormous rights upon you. A neighbor is someone on both sides or in front of you or behind you. And the ulama said there are about seven houses down on each side. They're all your neighbors. You have, they have enormous rights upon you. So the Prophet ﷺ said, Jibreel ﷺ kept on reminding me about the rights of my neighbor so much that one day I thought he's soon going to tell me that when you die, your neighbor inherits you as well. He takes your money and your house and everything. That's, that's how much the Prophet ﷺ, obviously Jibreel ﷺ doesn't say that your neighbor does not inherit you. But the Prophet ﷺ is emphasizing how much a neighbor has a right. To the point, if I just take one minute on this, especially if the young ones here can, can, will know, insha'Allah ta'ala, 
Islam and Muslims have to be the greatest example anywhere we are, anywhere we go, here in Australia, in America, in, in, in UK, in, in Lebanon, in Syria, in, in uh, China, in Japan, anywhere you go, anywhere you go in the world, the Muslim must be the greatest role model of treating the neighbor well, even if they are not Muslim. At all. Yelling in the backyard at night is harming the neighbor. Throwing, obviously, allowing rubbish or whatever to go to the neighbor is harming the neighbor. Let's say your car is, you know, you're working on your car and you let smoke go out and it goes to your neighbor. This is harming the neighbor. If you light up a barbecue and they smell the food, it is a right of the neighbor that you offer them. You take some food to them. Yeah? Knock on their door is a bit of meat. They love it. It's the right of your neighbor. You don't play, you know, the television or your radio or whatever it is loud to harm the neighbor. You know that, right? Parking in their driveway, cutting off their driveway, getting some young fellows, you know, young boys or, or whatever, or girls, and you, you create a little pack, a little gang, and you stand in front of their house. Or you smoke in front of their house. This is, this is harming the neighbor. If the neighbor tells you, look, I don't appreciate this, you don't shout at them and swear at them. You say, we're sorry. It's their right. You don't come out and stare at the neighbor in a bad way, even if he stares bad, bad at you. You don't do the same. Right? All these things are the neighbor's rights. Did you know that? Did you know that even in Islam, if, if the culture permits it, some people don't like this, it is said that if the Prophet ﷺ told us that if a child, if, if you've got a neighbor and their children see you giving your children ice cream, for example, or something, maybe your neighbor doesn't want you to give sweets to their children. What I'm saying is let's say they're giving something to the child that the other children you know, would like as well. If the neighbor permits, you should also give the, their children as well, not let them feel left out. It's enormous, subhanAllah. Something happens to your neighbor, you go visit them, even if they're not Muslim. You ask how they are, you look out for them, they trust you with, with their property. Subhanallah. This is all entrenched in Islam among the fara'id, among the compulsory things we should do. You come to the masjid, you don't park in the neighbor's thing, driveway, you don't do all these things. Brothers and sisters in Islam, the Prophet and the neighbor. What did he do? The first structure he built was the masjid. That's the absolute first thing the Prophet ﷺ did. As he was building the masjid, he gathered the Muslims and they started to help. They started gathering little trunks of palm trees and, and leaves to make the stumps and the walls. They made, they made clay out of the earth and they made bricks and they started building the bricks and putting cement through it. They put gravel and stone on the floor and the top was made out of branches. Very simple masjid is only about a hundred meters long by about a hundred meters wide. That's how the Prophet's mosque was, maybe with two pillars in the middle. That's it. That's all. Why? Because it's not how the mosque looks like. It's what you do in it. It's what you do in it. It's what it does for the community, what the community does in it. Listen to what Allah said. 
As a matter of fact, those who build the mosques of Allah, the places of worship of Allah, it doesn't say the engineers, the builders, the architects, it doesn't say that. The ones who build the masjids of Allah are those who truly have faith and belief in Allah and the hereafter and so on. It's your Iman, it's your Islam, it's your character, it's your brotherhood, it's your deen that you carry with you into the masjid that builds the masjid. It's your prayer together, your Quran together, your forgiveness to one another, your dua for each other, your helping of one another, your asking about the state of your brother and sister. In the masjid we know this, who died, who's alive, who's sick. Person didn't come to the masjid, usually comes. I wonder what happened. We ask about each other. The masjid is the place. This is a new person. See what they want. How are they? Make sure they're looked after. Someone wants to come know about Islam. We're here. This is the place where you forgive each other. This is the place where you talk to each other. This is the place where you make each other feel like your brothers and sisters. This is the place where you feel like you are family. This is not the place where we fight. It's not the place where we backbite each other. It's not the place where you hold grudges. Some ulama said that if you meet each other in the masjid and you don't talk to each other, it's fard. It's compulsory that you do say at least assalamu alaikum to each other. You have to. The rights of a Muslim are six. Number one, if he says assalamu alaikum to you, you must say wa alaikum assalam. If they ask you for advice, you have to give them sincere advice if you can. If you know something that you have, you know some skill, you can give them advice, give them. If they sneeze and say alhamdulillah, you have to say alhamdulillah. If you don't talk to the person, you're not even going to say alhamdulillah, you have to. If they are sick and you are able to visit them, then visit them. It's their right. Not every single person, but someone. You have to visit them if you can. If they die, you have to follow their funeral if you can. Not everybody, but at least some people. If he invited you or she invited you to their wedding and you are able to attend, you should go. These are the rights of a Muslim minimum. And it's strange that we come to the masjid and what do we do? I don't want to see this person. I don't want to see that person. Some, some of us don't want to go to the masjid because we don't want to see certain people. Subhanallah how it's turned upside down. When we see this in a community, know that this community is going to fail. Allah is not pleased with a community like that. Allah is not pleased with a community like that. And no matter how beautiful the masjid looks, the people coming in, if they are against each other and they are en enemies of each other, this masjid is not built at all. No matter how beautiful and big it looks. And no matter how, how unattractive it looks, if the people coming in there are brothers and sisters and they love each other and look out for each other and make each other feel welcome, they make each other feel like you are really a family, insha'Allah, then that is a truly a built masjid. It's the most beautiful, more beautiful than any building in the entire world. It's better than the building in Jannah. Wallahi, it's better than the palace in Jannah. That's where you feel your iman, connection with Allah. And that's why Allah called it the house of Allah. It's not your house, it's not my house, it's Allah's house. Check this out. When the Prophet ﷺ built the masjid, there was a land. He was owned by, by two orphans. Guess what? The Prophet ﷺ, he bought the land with his own money from these orphans. Amazing! How is it that the Prophet ﷺ is always the first to seize the opportunity to donate, to buy from those who are in need? Like, if, imagine you went back in time right now, 1,400 years ago. 
and you wanted to look for the Prophet You don't know what he really looks like. You don't know where he lives. I mean, you're living in the 21st century. Go back 1,400 years ago. You don't know where you are. But there is one way you will always... There is a, the biggest hint in how to find the Prophet You know where you've got to look for? Huh? Good boy. Good boy. You have to look for the poor people. Where are the poor people? Where are the orphans? Where are the ones wearing ragged? Where are the ones who are in need? Where are the ones who don't have homes? Where are the ones who are hungry? And there you are most likely, if you hang around long enough, not even long enough, maybe not even throughout a quarter of the day, you're going to see the Prophet And Rasulullah used to say, the fuqara, the poor people of this world, are the most abundant in Jannah. It doesn't mean that they have favors. It's just that he said, there are a lot of poor people who are closer to Allah. Just facts. And he used to say, I love the company of poor people. Poor as in financially poor. Not poor. Poverty is not your character. You've got a strong character. You've got a, a, a generous character. You are brave. This is not a poor person. This is a rich person. He's turned poor as in financially poor. He said, you'll find me around them. I love sitting around them. Masakin, the poor people, the needy people, the orphans. He bought the land and he built the masjid and it was the masjid of Allah. But they call it Masjid al-Nabawi. He didn't own it, yet he paid for the land. He doesn't come up and say, hey guys, it's my rules, my way or the highway, because I bought this land. This is my masjid. I'll put the committee that I want. I'll put the imam that I want. i put the rules that I want. No, no, no. Rasulullah said, as Allah said, say the earth belongs to Allah. He gives it to whoever he wills. I'm just a man like you, he used to say. And the first one to hold the bricks and carry the dirt and carry the, the, the clay was Muhammad وسلم, the Prophet himself. You think he sat there and let them work? He is the one who carried it on his shoulder. And uh, we said that the Prophet is not a poet. But every now and then, the Prophet, peace be upon him, fluked. Fluked a couple of sentences. So here was a time where he fluked a couple of sentences. He used to say as he's carrying the bricks and encouraging others to help and to work, he used to say to the Ansar and the Muhajirin, the migrants and the Ansar in there, he used to say, Allahumma la Aisha illa Aisha al-Akhirah, faghfir lil-Ansari wal-Muhajirah. And they all started to sing it together. The Ansar and the Muhajirin were so delighted when the Prophet made this poetry that as they were building the masjid, together they were singing this. Yani, singing as it... Don't think like a concert in Michael Jackson, I don't know what. We're talking about just, you know, nice melody that they were melodiously singing out of happiness together. There's nothing wrong with that. Chanting together. Allahumma la Aisha illa Aisha al-Akhirah. Which means, oh Allah, we know there is no real life except the life of the hereafter. This world is nothing. No matter how much money you get in it, it's not going to buy you happiness. That's basically what they're saying. It's like saying, this world, the money and luxury will not buy you happiness. It's same thing. فَغْفِرْ لِلْأَنصَارِ وَالْمُهَاجِرَةِ Oh Allah, forgive the Ansar and the migrants. So it was so special for the Ansar and the migrants that it bonded them together. In, in education, we do this a lot, where we find an activity to bring the students to do projects together. And let them do it together. They bond together, they do things together, they give each other ideas. And when they make something, they feel so proud of it. They feel so proud of it. Do it with your children. Let them make things at home. Let them 
figure out how they're going to decorate their bedrooms. Let them figure out how they're going to work around the kitchen and teach them. Let them make a piece of cooking for mothers. Let them do something outside in the backyard. Plant something. Let them plant a little, a little plant for you. And let them water it every day. You'll find that the child loves things that they've done with their hand. Especially when their brothers and sisters work together on the same project. Right? Tell them, go into that aisle over there and I want you to buy this list of things. Bring it to me and put it in the cart. They love it and they feel that they're part of it. So the Prophet ﷺ was encouraging the community rather than lecturing them, telling them off or telling them what to do. He brought them together and he made chanting poetry with them, right? It's not, well, like some parents and teachers, they teach their children and their students to sing and halal song, just words that, that make them um, bond together, right? So um, the Prophet ﷺ did the same thing. And uh, as they were building it, uh, it was Banu Najjar, they call it. There were people, a group of people called Banu Najjar. There was a man from the Jews. He was a scribe, a scholar of the Jews. His name was Abdullah ibn Salam. The Jews had heard about the Prophet's entrance and they, they didn't like it. They didn't like it because, number one, they were always boasting to the Arabs that a prophet is going to come out soon from them, as their scriptures say. But unfortunately for them, well for, it's not really unfortunate, but for themselves, they didn't like this. They, they, they were very, they were quite racist, honestly. And when he came up from the Arabs, they didn't want anything to do with him. He has to be from the children of Israel. What's all this? We've been telling the Arabs off all this time, boasting, suddenly he comes out from them. Subhanallah. So one of their scholars, Abdullah ibn Salam, he comes to the Prophet and wants to listen to him. He wants to. Listen to him. He's a scholar. He knows all the scriptures. He's not afraid of a man trying to manipulate him. Isn't that correct? When you're more knowledgeable, it's harder for you to be manipulated. What magic? What sorcery? He went to the Prophet ﷺ to hear his words. Now this was the actual first physical encounter of the Prophet ﷺ with Jews. He, he really didn't know what they were like. He had never encountered them. They were neighbors and he wanted to establish peace with them. But now he's going to learn what type of character those neighbors, neighboring Jews had. So Abdullah ibn Salam comes up, a scholar of the Jews, and he listens to him. He goes, I listened to only a few words from him. And from the moment I saw his face, I could tell from my skill. They, they had a skill, it was an art of looking at a face. And from the features, it's a science. You can kind of tell a bit about the person's personality. He goes, from the look of this Prophet's face, I knew immediately he is not a liar and he was truthful. He is not a liar. Till today, every enemy, every, every orientalist or historian that, that doesn't like the Prophet can say everything they want about him, but they cannot call him a liar. They cannot establish that. Nobody can call him a liar. He never lied, right? And he said, I knew he had a face of a man who does not lie. And that made me listen to him. He goes, I listened to a few words and he embraced Islam. He, com he compared it to the scriptures he has. He goes, this is the truth. He embraced Islam on the spot and the Prophet said, uh -uh. then the man said, Abdullah said, Ya Rasulullah, don't tell the Jews yet. Don't tell my people that I've embraced Islam. For Wallahi, you don't know them. They are manipulative people and you cannot trust what they say to you. Now, I'm not having a go at the Jews. There are beautiful Jews out there. Okay, we don't judge the Jews as a whole, but those who do the wrong, we judge them. 
the ones, the Zionists who are in Palestine, who occupy Palestine unfairly and oppressively, we where they happen to be Jewish uh, Zionist Jews, whom the majority of Jews of the world do not agree with for their own purposes and reasons. But they happen to be Jews, we are against their action and their oppression. So the Prophet ﷺ, these Jews were around him, and now he was learning their characteristics. He says, Abdullah Sam, my people are not trustworthy and they're cunning and conniving. So before you tell them that I have embraced Islam, let them come forward first and ask them about me first. So they came along and the Prophet ﷺ said, What do you think of your scribe, Abdullah ibn Salam? And they all said, there was about 50 of them, they all stood up with one voice in front of everybody. They said, Wallahi, he is the most honorable among us, son of the most honorable among us, he is the most honorable among us, son of the most honorable among us, and the most knowledgeable among us. Then he said, the Prophet said, what if he were to embrace Islam? They said, na'udhu billah. We seek refuge in God that he would do anything like that. And then he said, Abdullah ibn come out. Right there. Yani there's no, there's maybe 20 seconds. He comes out and he said, Oh my people, I bear witness there is only one God and Muhammad, this man is the messenger of God. Immediately they said, Wallahi, he is the most disgraceful among us, son of the most disgraceful and the most ignorant, ignorant among us. <laughs> right there within 20 seconds. Subhanallah. Most honorable, now the most disgraceful. Son of the most honorable, son of the most disgraceful. The most knowledgeable, now the most ignorant. So brothers and sisters, if you know yourself that you are on the truth and you are speaking the truth, and somebody calls you a liar, a false person, tries to change your words around, manipulate your words, twist your words, twist your actions, try to you know, defame you or whatever, if you know yourself, and you know that you are doing the right thing and saying the right thing, then only know that these people, they just hate you, they just want to be enemy, they're just envious, they just want to stop you. They, they know that they are wrong, but they want to project it on you, they want to make you look like the bad person. Let them be. Allah says in the Quran, Khud al Afwa, be noble, continue to tell people good things, and the ignorant ones, avoid them. Don't, don't respond to them, they just want to argue. Okay, so it's Adhan time now for Aisha. I'll take just one more minute, inshallah, to wrap up. My brothers and sisters in Islam, the masjid was built. And the Prophet ﷺ wants to call people to it. They need a special call for this new building, for this special community. They're making poetry. That's nice, but it's not going to last. And subhanAllah, there are different narrations. I don't know which one's true, but in one of them, that one of the companions, I forgot his name, he slept and then he woke up. And he came to the Prophet in the masjid and said, Ya Rasulullah, he slept in Qaylula, siesta in the middle of the day. He said, I saw a man standing beside me. And he was saying this and this. And this, he was saying, Allahu Akbar, Allahu Akbar. And telling me to repeat, and I was repeating after him. Then Ashhadu an la ilaha illallah. Then Ashhadu anna Muhammad Rasulullah. Hayya ala salah, hayya ala salah, hayya ala falah, hayya ala falah. Allahu Akbar, Allahu Akbar. La ilaha illallah. 
come to success, come to prayer. There's no God but Allah. Allah is the greatest. This is the Adhan. And the Prophet ﷺ, he called Bilal. said, Ya Bilal, come here. Walk with him. He was an Ansari. The man was from the Ansari. Walk with him and climb up there. A little bit of a towel. And Bilal, and you, the Ansari, tell Bilal what to say, and he will say it after you. Ya Bilal, call because you have a loud reaching voice. So technically, the first person to call the Adhan was really not Bilal. Inshallah, next week I'll, I'll try to remember and get you the name of this Sahabi. Right? As, though, as he was calling the Adhan, he called the people gathered. Umar, there's a funny story about him. Umar, you'll soon know his character. He comes running barefoot. His top was barely on him, like you could see part of his shoulders, part of his chest. And his izar, you know the izar, the thing they wrap around, it was half off. He was holding it like this. He says, Ya Rasulullah, Ya Rasulullah. In a big voice. I saw that dream, I saw it. I saw the man saying that, uh, that, 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 those words. And the Prophet ﷺ smiled and he said, This will be the call of our ummah to salat. And so the adhan was established, my brothers and sisters. The Muslims came to the masjid. And what did he do? It was not time for salat. What did he do? Uh, this will be our topic next week, inshallah. We're going to start from here. I'll tell you what he did next week. No? But guess what he did? What did he do? Anyone? He did something that was the most amazing thing in the world. That we need. We need always in our lives. We're doing it right now, I think. No. He made them into something called Ukhuwa. Ukhuwa. Which means brotherhood and sisterhood. You know, we're brothers and sisters in Islam. That never existed. This was the first time it ever happened. Nobody ever knew about this thing called brothers and sisters. It's like you belong to my family or my bloodline. That's it. Or from our people. Now the brotherhood and sisterhood was established. Now next week I want to talk to you about this. You have to come back because this is very, very, very important. Okay? The brotherhood and sisterhood system that had never existed before. My brothers and sisters, Jazakumullah khair for listening. Inshallah, we'll see you next week. Same time to Maghrib Naysha'a. Sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'in. Wassalamu alaykum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.